Turn with me, please, to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah 53. You can find Psalms. It's um, somewhere off to the right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Isaiah 53. I was reading a report uh, a few weeks ago of a Wycliffe translator who was working among the Amahuaca Indians in uh, eastern Peru and looking for the word for forgiveness, which they didn't seem to have in their vocabulary. He couldn't even find uh, an idiom that would, uh, would suffice. And one day he was walking uh, down a jungle trail, down a single track with one of the natives on a hunting trip. And his friend, who was walking immediately behind him, stepped on the back of his tennis shoe and pulled it off of his heel, gave him a flat tire, we would say. And uh, he uh, was a little bit tired. It was at the end of the day, and he was sort of irritated, so he flashed an angry look at the native, and then he sat down and began to retie his shoe. When he noticed that there was uh, just complete quiet, his friend was standing there looking at him. And after a time, when the missionary failed to respond the native said speak to me and he knew he had his idiom because in Amwakan when someone offends someone else their concern is that they might have uh, broken down the lines of communication and that they were no longer on speaking terms with the person they've offended and so they wait for the other person to speak to them now that's not too far from our experience I think most of us are looking back over this past week and think of things that we've done that we'd wish we had not done or things that we've thought that we shouldn't have thought and some of the things that we've done and thought have been uh, pretty vile indeed and we wonder if God's still on speaking terms with us or has he like some of our friends uh, withdrawn and, and is he refusing to speak does he still love us is he still pursuing us well he is we have that on good authority. That's what Scripture tells us. And this passage in Isaiah 53 confirms it. As I said uh, last week, these servant songs are all about the Lord Jesus. The servant of the Lord is the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, commentators on the book of Isaiah identify the servant of the Lord variously, sometimes with Israel itself. And they're clear that some of these passages do refer to the nation as a whole. Other times, the servant of the Lord seems to be identified with what Isaiah calls the remnant, that hardcore faith in Israel, those that were pursuing God with all of their heart. At other times, the uh, servant of the Lord is clearly the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And the New Testament considers these verses in that way. Uh, there are any number of New Testament passages that apply Isaiah 53 directly to the Lord. So remember, we're talking about a, uh, our Lord Jesus here who was predicted 750 years before he came. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. There are four uh, stanzas to the uh, song of three verses each. Uh, pardon me, there are five stanzas of three verses each. Uh, unfortunately, the first and second stanzas are divided by a chapter division that doesn't uh, belong there. Calvin, in his commentary on Isaiah, says that the chapter 
division here not only divides the text, it dismembers it. And uh, I agree. It, uh, to take the chapter division here does violence to the uh, development of, of the argument. These chapter divisions are not part of the original text. As you know, they came quite late, late during the medieval period. Uh, they're liturgical devices, ways to uh, aid worship and ways to find your way around the, uh, the Bible, but they're not part of the text. And this one certainly does destroy the uh, continuity of the song. The song actually begins in chapter 52, verse 13, where we're introduced to the servant there. See, my servant will act wisely. The word means to uh, act in such a way that you're prosperous or successful, as the margin indicates. So we could translate, Behold my servant, he's successful. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations. That is, sprinkle in the sense of forgiving many nations. In those days, the priest would dip his fingertips in the, the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the worshipers, signifying their forgiveness. So he will sprinkle with blood. He will forgive many nations, many Gentiles is the idea. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. So we're told at the very outset that uh, the Lord would be successful in what he did, which is good news for us because we're not always successful. Like the man who tackled the thing that couldn't be done with a will, he went right to it. He tackled the thing that couldn't be done, and he couldn't do it. And that's uh, somewhat the story of our life. But the good news to know is, is that the Lord himself is a success. The gospel story ends well. We're aligned with the right party. And that's good news in the midst of so much bad news when everything seems to be going badly for us. But his success comes through suffering. There's a contrast between verses 14 and 15 here. It's very clear in this translation. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, so, in verse 15, will he sprinkle many nations. The reason for their shock, the reason they were appalled, is given to us in the last two lines of verse 14, where you have a description of his disfigurement. The beatings that he received at the hands of the Roman soldiers so disfigured him, he was unrecognizable. And the point of the song is that the measure of injustice and indignity meted out to our Lord was the measure of his forgiveness. They beat him to death. And he returned the beatings with blessing. In fact, the beatings were the very means by which our salvation comes to us. There wasn't any other way. They put him to death. But that death brought about salvation. And in the final line, we're told that what they were not told, that is, what the Gentiles didn't know, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. They didn't know. They had no advance notice of his coming. The Jews did. But the Gentile world did not know that he was coming. We know something of the state of things in those days. In Rome, there were about two million people. About a million of them were uh, slaves. And about a fourth of those that were free men were on the public dole. 
They were being supported by the government in various ways. So people were idle. No one worked hard. Slaves were the only ones who worked, and they weren't uh, considered to be people. There were no hospitals. No one cared for the poor. Life was just cold and hard and ruthless. There are some uh, grave stones, epitaphs on gravestones that uh, have endured from that time. And uh, one that's particularly poignant was a tombstone over the grave of a child. And the parents had written, I curse the gods who took away her life. And one of the writers says, Where is the hand from without that can bring us out of this deep despair? And the Lord came, who was the one who would lead them out, and they didn't know he was coming. The word had been given to the Jewish nation. The oracles of God, as Paul puts it, were given to them, and they had failed to tell the Gentile world that the man was coming who would set things right. And they put him to death. Dorothy Sayers, in her uh, choice way, describes it in this, in this manner. We may call that doctrine, that is the, the gospel, exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then world, words have no meaning at all. That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news. Those who did hear it for the first time actually called it news, and good news at that. But we are apt to forget that the word gospel ever meant anything so sensational. That was the good news. They put him to death, but through that death, he provided salvation for the world. You can't outdo the grace of God, as Paul puts it, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. They uh, did their worst to him, and he gave them the very best. He gave them life itself. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the cross itself made it possible for that forgiveness to be extended to all, not just those at the foot of the cross, but, but all of us. And we think back over this past week at the things we've done, and we wonder if the Lord still loves us. We maybe even said, Lord, I just uh, I don't even want you in my life. I wish you'd drop out and leave me alone. But uh, he still loves us, and he still forgives us. We may have taken his name in vain, but he still forgives us. And the proof is this passage. They did the worst they could do. They beat him to death, and he extended forgiveness to them. And he still does today. That's the good news. But uh, unfortunately, the Jews of that period didn't believe the good news. Chapter 53, verses 1, uh, 2, and 3 describe for us the rejection of Jesus. Isaiah writes uh, on behalf of the nation, Who has believed our message? That is what we have heard. The Gentiles understood what they had not heard. But Isaiah says, Who believed what we heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Lord rolled up his sleeves and sleeved and sleeve and bared his mighty arm of salvation to his own people. As John puts it, he came to his own and his own received him not. 
And the reason is given in verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. The word means heartbreak. He knew what it was to go through all the trivial irritations of family life, to not have a mate, to have no money, to be broke, to be out of a job, to, uh, to hurt as we, as we hurt. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The line, one from whom we hid our faces, is generally taken to refer to the treatment accorded a leper. When a leper happened to pass by the street, you turned away from him. You covered your face and said, unclean. And that's the way they considered our Lord. He was unclean. He was like a leper. In fact, the rabbis even attributed the name leper to Messiah on the basis of, of this passage. And a, the later verb, he was stricken by God, which seems to apply to, to leprosy almost exclusively in the Old Testament. That's the way they, uh, they treated him. Because he didn't come the way they imagined that he would come. They thought that he would be much more regal. They wanted a king like the other nations, but he didn't come that way. He came lowly and riding on a little donkey. Can you imagine a king riding into town on a little flop-eared donkey with his feet dragging the ground? And uh, wearing uh, the clothes of a laborer, Levi's, and logging boots. And he had dirt under his fingernails. And, and uh, he identified with us completely. He didn't come down from his castle up on top of the mountain and condescend to visit the poor benighted subjects. He just lived among us. It's interesting that in Bethlehem, if you visit Bethlehem today, they'll take you to a place called Herodium. It's on a flat-top hill that overlooks the city of Bethlehem. It was Herod's summer house, which he uh, modestly named for himself. And uh, it was built there possibly because Herod had, ridden the, uh, had, had read the uh, prophecy in Micah that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem, and he perhaps built his castle there, his palace, to ensure that the king of the Jews would be born in his house. But the Lord bypassed the palace, and he was born in a barn down below where shepherds found him. He would, wouldn't have anything to do with Herod and, and his household. That's the kind of Lord he was. He was a king, but they didn't know it. Isaiah says, We esteemed him not. We reckoned his worth to be 30 pieces of silver, the value of, of a slave. And furthermore, in verse 4, what they didn't see was the nature of his suffering. It was substitutionary. As theologians put it, it was a vicarious, substitutionary atonement. It was for us. The key to this section in 4 through 6 is the pronouns, the way the pronouns are used, and they're heavily accentuated in, in the text. Surely he took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. In other words, we thought that God was afflicting him for his iniquity. What we didn't see was that God was afflicting him for our iniquity. He was pierced for our transgression. Interesting. 750 years before Jesus came, proleptically, we're told he was pierced through for our iniquity, our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It was for us he died. 
Isaiah says, we thought that he was dying for his own sins, but it was for ours. He was taking the sins of the world upon himself because, in verse 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All of us, he says, have gone astray, but the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. So the problem is universal. But so is the solution. I don't really like this analogy. I don't like to be uh, likened to a sheep. I used to raise sheep. I had a herd of Shropshire sheep, and I can understand why cattlemen hate them. They are the most miserable beasts on the face of the earth. They are virtually worthless. I don't even like to eat sheep. They smell bad. And they are ignorant. And they're wayward. You can't do anything with them. It's like trying to organize a bunch of earthworms. They just don't respond. Hey, sheep. But unfortunately, they're a very good simile because we're like sheep. And in this one line, we're given the essence of sin. They go astray, and we like sheep have gone our own way. That's what sin is. It's not so much the specific things we do. It's the general attitude that we have. We say to God, yes, you have a plan for my life, but I have one too, and I think mine is far greater. And we keep wandering away. That's what sin is. And Isaiah says it afflicts all of us. No one is exempted. Some of you men who are in the service will remember the inevitable dice games after payday when the uh, blankets were rolled out on the floor and out came the dice and... Uh, if you were observing one of those games and you saw someone roll a seven and then he rolled another seven and then another seven, uh, you would start doing some thinking given the fact that normally, you know, velocity and angle and force are not the same on every throw. There must be something inherently wrong with those dice. They're loaded. And, and that's the conclusion you come to as you look around the human race, regardless of our cultural, geographical, educational, social backgrounds, we all go astray. There's something wrong with all of us. The problem is, is universal. We're all like sheep. We've all gone astray. We all want nothing, whatever, to do with God. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. All our iniquity in all of us. In other words, there's no sin which will disqualify you for the grace of God. You can look back in your past and think of the terrible, heinous things you've done, and there's simply not one sin, not one sin, that will disqualify you from the grace of God. In verses 7 through 9, we have a description of the resignation of the servant. This is really the drama of redemption being played out. It's a description of the events that led to his to his death he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth he was like a lamb led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent so he did not open his mouth that's true as we know from the gospel accounts of his trial he didn't defend himself he willingly submitted himself to the father's will he didn't want to go to the cross that's clear from the garden prayer but he went like like a lamb to the slaughter by arrest by trial he was taken away 
And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He had no uh, marriage partner. He had no children. He was cut off for his own sin. No, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Literally. The stroke should have fallen on us. But it fell on him. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. The normal custom in those days was to burn the bodies of criminals in Gehenna, which was a city dump off to the southwest of the city of Jerusalem, down in the valley of Hinnom. But he was spared that fate because he was buried with a rich man in his death. Another interesting uh, predictive passage here, uh, almost 800 years before Christ came. Joseph Arimathea's kindness is predicted. Though he was assigned a grave with the wicked, the two, the two thieves, he was placed in a tomb made available by a rich man. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He submitted to all of these indignities, though he deserved none of them. He never offended anyone in word or deed. That's what Isaiah means when he says he had done no violence, nor was deceit in, in his mouth. And again, let me read from Dorothy Sayers. Uh, creed and chaos. Possibly, she says, we might prefer not to take this tale too seriously. There are disquieting points about it. Here we had a man of divine character walking and talking among us, and what did we find to do with him? The common people indeed heard him gladly, but our leading authorities in church and state considered that he talked too much and uttered too many disconcerting truths, so we bribed one of his friends to hand him over quietly to the police. And we tried him on a rather vague charge of creating a disturbance and had him publicly flogged and hanged on, the, on a common gallows, thanking God we were rid of the knave. All this was not very creditable to us, even if he was, as most people thought and still think, only a harmless, crazy preacher. But if the church is right about him, it was more discreditable still for the man we hanged was God Almighty. As Paul puts it, this was uh, the greatest scandal in history. This was the day that they crucified the Lord of glory. He came to save and they spat on him and they hit him and they very nearly beat him to death and played games with him and they hung him on a cross and they thought they were rid of him. He was dead and buried, safely put away. But he was God Almighty, come in the flesh. And the next chapter tells us that he broke out of that tomb. Though it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him, cause him to suffer, in verse 10, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, that, that is, he was, his life was offered up for our guilt, he will yet see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. That's what Hebrews means when it says, because of the glory that he saw before him, he endured the cross. He saw the light of life. We would say he saw the light of day. He rose again for our justification. Paul tells us in Romans, had he not risen from the dead, we would have no justification. That's God's seal of approval that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He was the eternal Son of God. 
God himself in flesh, whom the Father raised from the dead. And therefore, in verse 11, by his knowledge, that is, by the knowledge of him, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, or among the many. The word that's translated great is the same term translated many in the, in the uh, phrase above. And I think it's uh, what Paul has in mind when he says in Ephesians 1 that Christ has an inheritance among the saints. He will, I will give him an inheritance, a portion among the many, and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. It's a great victory scene. Those that had been victims, those that had been victimized were set free and they, they could share in the spoils of the conquest. In other words, everything that Jesus Christ has coming to him because of his sonship comes to us because by faith we're in him. In the last line of verse 12, we're told that he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the bottom line. That's what made it all possible. Hebrews 7 says, therefore, he always lives to make intercession for us. It's an ongoing thing. We never lose it. Once we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ and we've accepted the fact that he bore in his body our sins on the cross and we commit ourselves to him in that special way, then we are forgiven. And nothing we, do, we can do can take us out of the Father's love. That love is relentless. It just keeps pursuing us. He never lets up. He never gives up. Never quits. And the thing I learned from reading through this passage is that we walk in that forgiven state, as Paul puts it, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. How rich is his grace? Well, it's infinitely rich. And so that forgiveness is infinite. And you say, I can't forget my sin. No, you can't. And I think it's cruel to tell someone, well, just forget your past. You can't. Even God does not forget our past. Those passages that tell us he doesn't remember our sins have to do with remembering them in the sense of visiting judgment upon us. Even God doesn't forget the fact that we're sinful. But what he remembers is the sacrifice that Christ made. And we're forgiven on that basis for all sins, past, present, future even the sins you have not yet committed. 